Yo, yo, yo. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, as always, Kane Sims. And uh, today we're going to have an excellent conversation with Stefan Bykirk, who is the uh, data analyst and conversational AI specialist at Rabobank. It's one of the Netherlands' leading banks. We're going to be talking about use cases, conversation design, best practice, learnings, value, and all of that kind of stuff to help you create your AI assistance in the best way possible. Uh, before we do kick off, a quick shout out to our presenting sponsor Deepgram. Uh, Deepgram has, if you don't know already, industry-leading speech recognition. If you are creating voice assistance for your call center uh, and voice bots and, and the like, then you should definitely check out Deepgram. You can retrain Deepgram's models based on your uh, customer's dialect, jargon, terminology, uh, your products and services and those kind of things, which means that you can get the speech recognition super accurate, which means you're feeding your NLU accurate data and giving it the best chance of understanding what people say. It's one of the most underrated parts of the whole pipeline i think speech recognition uh, so do check out deepgram.com forward slash vux world if you are interested in learning more and very briefly uh, next thursday i'll be running an entirely free workshop with cognigy one of Gartner's Magic Quadrant uh, leaders in conversational AI, uh, AI platforms. And uh, we'll be covering customer experience and CX maturity. So bring yourself, bring your team. It's entirely free. We're going to run through a two-hour-long, completely free workshop where we'll take you through a few frameworks. We'll help you identify where you sit currently as far as your CX maturity is concerned and some of the things that you can do to up your CX game and deliver better customer experiences for your customers and better business results as well. So go to vux.world forward slash Cognigy to register. That is vux.world forward slash Cognigy, C-O-G-N-I-G-Y. And that is next Thursday. We're also running one in September as well, so you might want to jump on that one. That's September the 1st. Uh, cool. So without further ado, boys and girls, please welcome Stefan Bykirk, who is the data analyst and conversational AI expert at Rabobank. Stefan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for joining us. Uh, whereabouts are you in the Netherlands? Um, I'm living in Amsterdam. Nice. In the west of Amsterdam. Classic, classic. Uh, Amsterdam was the last trip I took before lockdown. Really? And uh, yeah, lockdown prevented me from going back again uh, sooner. Fantastic city. Absolutely love it. Um, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, for those that don't know uh, of yourself or Rabobank, maybe we'll start by introducing yourself you know what you do at Rabobank and then for those that are in the US and, and other parts of the world uh, maybe explaining what Rabobank is as well might be a, a good idea yeah definitely uh, thanks for having me I'm uh, as you said Stefan I uh, live in Amsterdam but I grew up uh, in the center of uh, the Netherlands uh, near Utrecht and I moved to Amsterdam in 2005 uh, to uh, study sociology um, and uh, uh, I've been living there ever since, um, 36 years old, and I've been working at Rabobank for the past uh, six and a half years. Um, I started out as a customer service agent, um, and after three years, uh, I was asked to join the team that was uh, starting to um, yeah, discover uh, the creation of a chatbot, the first chatbot of Rabobank. Um, and uh, yeah, I started out there, uh, doing an analysis on what the most frequently asked questions from customers were. And um, uh, yeah, I was supposed to stay there for three months. Uh, and uh, I've been doing it for three and a half years now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, grew into the role of, uh, as you said, data analyst. And uh, yeah, familiar, familiarized myself uh, with conversational AI. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be such a perfect fit for me 
that uh, I can see myself working in uh, in there for the years to come. Uh, but Rabobank, it's uh, one of the three largest banks uh, within the Netherlands. Uh, you have ING, Adin Amro, and uh, Rabobank. And uh, there's a lot of similarities between these banks, but uh, Rabobank is, I think, unique in its origin. Uh, it originated as a farmer's uh, initiative, uh, to actually that merged into one farmer's bank. And uh, up until this day, it is one of the biggest players uh, worldwide, uh, actually, in food and uh, agriculture financing. Uh, we are uh, uh, operating in 36 countries, uh, but our main uh, uh, place of operation is, of course, the Netherlands, uh, where we have um, uh, 9 million customers, uh, eight of whom are uh, private customers and 1 million business customers. Hmm. And uh, yeah, we are different in that uh, to this day we are a corporation and we are not listed in the stock market. So we don't have stakeholders, but uh, members actually, and anyone with an account can become a member as well. And uh, yeah, those uh, two um, facts, so the farmer's uh, background and uh, yeah, the cooperation structure um, also uh, translate into the bank's mission, which is uh, growing a better world together. Uh, a bit ambitious, but uh, I think it's nice to have mm. big ambitions. Nice, definitely, yeah. yeah. So, so you began your journey into the conversational AI kind of space, coming in as a subject matter expert. Would that be fair yeah. to say? And then you obviously gained a bit of experience um, and took on the took on the role full time, then working on conversational AI assistance. But the origins was what you were brought into the project team as a subject matter expert. Is is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I was basically um, uh, doing analysis um, and uh, on what were the uh, most frequently asked uh, categories of questions. Um, so obviously, far back, that's uh, things like debit card, the credit card, um, and um, uh, yeah, that analysis was uh, done by simple counting or, um, at the customer service, but also analyzing uh, visits of our web pages. Um, and that really introduced me into data analysis as well. And uh, yeah, I've been trying to develop both uh, skills over the last few years. And uh, I think I'm involved in almost every part of the creation of our conversational uh, solutions uh, in some way or another. Uh, and I think you can best now maybe uh, see me as a consultant. Right, interesting, that's interesting. How would you, dis so typically, you mentioned you're involved in every part, what if you were, if you were to explain the pro we'll get into some of the use cases now in a moment but if you were to explain the process that Rabobank follow mm -hmm. how do you fit into that process um yeah it starts basically with collecting customer questions i would say um and trying to uh, formulate answers to those questions create the dialogues um and i've done uh, a lot of the ai training so um, in the sense of uh, gathering the training phrases and uh, yeah, training uh, and optimizing the model. Um, but uh, from my background experience at the customer service, I also check content uh, still to this day uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I provide feedback to the content designers. Um, I am um, uh, involved in testing um, both for the uh, development part as uh, for like IT part but also for the testing of the dialogues. 
Um, I create dashboarding uh, to see our performance and uh, yeah, try to think of uh, ways of how to optimize our performance. And that is also by doing uh, research and uh, learning more about the craft. Nice. And where did it start for Rabobank then? The, the first uh, project that you were brought into, was that one of those kind of FAQ-based interactions? Like, what, I wonder if you can describe what that first project was. Yeah, we um, started out on a, a trial department uh, called the Digital Hub, and that was a trial department for um, working agile Scrum, um, which the bank at that point was not doing. Um, and um, uh, yeah, um, within that context, uh, there was also the possibility to try out new uh, concepts that would work well in such an environment. Um, and uh, that's when uh, yeah, the project of the first chatbot was created. That was uh, mid-2018, I think. Um, and it started out very small with uh, four people, uh, one product owner, uh, an external consultant, um, one content designer, and one subject matter expert. Um, actually, a colleague of mine, Jenner, uh, started out and I replaced him in January 2019. And uh, we really started out by doing a very thorough uh, market um, investigation of what uh, tooling would uh, best fit. Um, but also uh, yeah, did a lot of research on what were the best practices at that point and what were other companies uh, doing that were, uh, had already started. Um, and yeah, one of the, um, the main findings of that analysis at that point was that we didn't want to go live with uh, something yeah, too shabby uh, because yeah, first impression uh, can be very important. Um, and especially within uh, the field of chatbots, which isn't uh, too popular in the first place with a lot of customers, uh, yeah, we didn't feel comfortable uh, yeah, going live with uh, only a few dialogues. Um, so we started out with five categories of uh, questions, uh, like I said, for instance, debit card, credit card, and then uh, uh, filtering down on what are the most frequently asked questions and creating the dialogues for that. Uh, so it actually took a pretty long time before we went live as well. I think in my, yeah, my memory, it's, it was uh, 2018 uh, that we started and 2020 that we first went live. Right. Interesting. So it took quite a long time um, yeah. to get the thing live. What was it? Uh, what was it like when it went live? In terms of you know, you said you didn't want it to be a couple of you know a couple of question answers and and that was it. So you put a lot of time and effort into doing that research. What did you end up going live with? Was it all of these categories fully populated with X number of FAQ? I wonder if you can describe what it was that actually went live in the end. Uh, yeah, we we really went live with uh, fully formed dialogues. So that was the big advantage of those. Uh, uh, yeah, that long period of preparation. Um, that yeah, it it was really conversational, not FAQ. Uh, so it was really going back and forth. Uh, we had training from uh, the Conversation Design Institute in the Netherlands. Back then, it was called uh, Robocopy. Um, and they're quite well known in the Netherlands and they provide all sorts of trainings uh, and consulting services within Conversational. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we went live small scale on the anonymous uh, website on a few pages uh, yeah, to, uh, to find out what customers would think. 
Nice. Um, interesting. And so, how what, what how did you get the um, data in order to train those models during that two-year period when you're working behind the scenes and in, in mm -hmm. stealth? Uh, we already had a chat application, um, and uh, we had pulled a, a month of uh, live log from that uh, chat application, and uh, we just searched through the logs for the five main categories that we uh, had defined, um, and uh, then just labeled all these the hundreds of questions, um, and uh, uh, yeah, we had a rule of thumb that um, a question within those categories had to be asked at least 20 times uh, in order for it to be uh, eligible for uh, yeah, creating a dialogue. Interesting. So we had actual customer data, real customer questions. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the 20 times rule is quite an interesting one to try and focus on the, the ones that you know are going to be at least probably long tail compared to the volume you have on other queries, but at least yeah. sufficient enough because there's nothing worse than a chatbot that that says I don't know what you're saying to everybody, yeah. but every chatbot has to say that to some mm -hmm. people because it's not realistic to have it working for absolutely everybody all the time. Um, but it's interesting where you got that number from. Where did you get that twenty number from, or was it kind of like a finger in the okay. air? That seems about right. <laughs> um, pretty much all that we had decided on was based on some form of analysis. So I'm pretty sure we have read a blog somewhere or uh, um, I think, yeah, we looked into uh, how do these MLU models work. Uh, and also we had, um, uh, we first used Nuance, Nuance Lina, um, and we had a consultancy uh, uh, colleagues over there uh, that briefed us on uh, yeah, minimum requirements. Uh, right, so be, so you were basically looking for the minimum requirements of training data per intent. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, as you said, what we really didn't want was for one of the most um, yeah um, straightforward questions like how can I replace my debit card uh, for it to fill that um, yeah. we really wanted to prevent. Yeah, yeah, good. It's interesting to base it on how much training data you need rather than how much volume is coming from the customer i suppose it's kind of the same thing um but yeah basing it on how much training data you need is quite quite an interesting one um so when you're going through that process of taking it live in 2020 you did a kind of like soft launch analyzed it had you done any other testing before that like any usability testing or more kind of like um yep. you know when you go live that's more kind of like um it's like quali qu quantitative testing, isn't it? Which is that let's look at the numbers, let's improve the models, but it's also important to have the qualitative testing, which is, is this thing a decent experience? Do people like it? Like, is it actually, can people get to one end of the conversation to another? Did you do any of that kind of research and testing before? Yeah, yeah. within those two years, we have UX department uh, at Rabobank. It has a UX lab also, and um, a colleague from UX uh, designers, um, really helped us create uh, also our custom front end that we use for the chat. Um, and um, they did a field uh, research uh, and asked um, customers as well as um, our colleagues what they uh, thought of the initial designs uh, and the entire concept of the chatbot. Nice. Was there any, uh, any surprises that come out of that? Anything you learned that you thought, hmm? 
wasn't expecting no, that. Not really, not really. No. <laughs> no. No, it was pretty uh, expected, actually. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I suppose it means you've done a decent enough job of, of finding a good starting point, and the solution must have been in a half decent shape by that point and stuff like that. I think sometimes when you do that testing, I always like to do it early. Especially when, you know, I used to do a lot of work on, on Alexa skills and Google Assistant actions. And in that space, you're creating a brand new type of interaction for a brand new type of platform, brand new type of device. And often, often it was a brand new type of interaction. Like it might be, um, you know, a conversation that's being created purposefully to get somebody from one side of an insurance quote to another or helping them plan for retirement or, you know, whatever those things may be. And it was all entirely new to people. Whereas chat, I think mental models, people have begun to build up a mental model of, of a chatbot. And so it's not like you've got this massive creative endeavor at the beginning, like how do we create something that's marketable? It's more a case of using the data to find problems that you can solve with the solution. And so you're coming at it from a well-grounded foundation, basically. So yeah, shouldn't really get too many surprises. <clears throat> no, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And um... Yeah, basically, we knew, we already knew what our customers were using the platform of Chat for, and uh, yeah, we also had the urge uh, to help out our customer service. Uh, I had personal experience uh, of the work uh, work pressure uh, that is involved uh, at the peak hours uh, there, um, and yeah, we also had the confirmation from customers that. Uh, if it works properly and it can uh, provide you with the correct answer, then sure, why not use a chatbot? Mm, nice. So you went live in 2020 after doing some a lot of research, a lot of data analysis, a lot of customer testing. Uh, you go live with a soft launch. Was that the first time that you'd actually tested the integrity of the language model? I know you've probably done some testing yourselves, but now it's in the wild and you've got people actually talking to it. Was that the first time of doing properly testing the language model or did you do any testing on that beforehand? Uh, we did beforehand uh, because uh, we, besides the set of trigger phrases, uh, we had a testing set for blind testing. Um, so we used that uh, to see if, um, yeah, so those were untrained, uh, but real customer questions. Uh, and uh, we checked yeah, the performance of the model. Um, so we were already um, yeah, more or less aware of the ability, but uh, of course you're never uh, fully prepared for uh, actual go live. Mm. And the actual go live was at a time when everything changed? Yes, yes, yeah, because uh, before that, we were basically completely unknown within the organization uh, we had no customers, uh, eye on us, no feedback. So yeah, we, we had this playground that we could just, uh, yeah, do whatever we like more or less. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, yeah, you're in the public eye. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Then the optimization starts, uh, people want things from you. There's a lot of, uh, uh opinions, of course. So yeah, that, uh, drastically mm. changed. And then also you have a pandemic that happened uh, yeah. in the middle of the year. <laughs> did, did, that, did that affect what you were doing? Did that have to have you change direction, make changes? Or did you carry on with what you originally had? Uh, and that kind of, I wonder if, you, if, if the pandemic affected your chatbot in any way. Mm, uh, I think indirectly, I think um, 
also and that also has to do with the maturity of the product uh, but I think we have pretty much accepted the um, uh, yeah the existence of chatbots and even embraced it uh, at least most of us I think um, and I think the pandemic has made it extra clear how uh, yeah vital uh, automation like that actually is and I think we've moved away from this uh, fear of automation uh, taking jobs uh, to the uh, desperate need for automation to uh, yeah to fulfill certain types of jobs mm, absolutely um, so you went live in 2020 what was the results what was your kind of early results what was the the, the things that you noticed after after going live well uh, the huge range of uh, topics that are asked by uh, uh, customers uh, from a bank that is one of the first thing that really hits you uh, after you go live with only uh, yeah a portion of that um, fully developed um, I think one thing we did to mitigate that uh, nicely is uh, the concept of what we called provisional answers um, and we did gather uh, training phrases for um, uh, yeah for those subjects that we didn't create dialogues for and we offered a direct escalation uh, to an employee um, so I think overall our performance was pretty good um, because there yeah, we had high recognition on those general uh, provisional answers as well um, but uh, yeah of course um, you run into all sorts of issues both uh, technical NLU wise but also content uh, not being fully uh, yeah uh, uh, fitting the, the needs of customers uh, so yeah I became uh, really uh, focused on uh, yeah getting the feedback rates up because that uh, yeah of course is uh, the first thing that springs into mind Mm-hmm. And you know, as as a data analyst, your role in those days would have been, I imagine, looking at the details of the bot's kind of technical performance, yeah. and possibly some of that qualitative stuff as well. Like you know, if the customers are giving any kind of direct feedback to it and stuff like that. So you've got like two levels of measurement, haven't you? You've got like the bot itself and the customer interaction. You want to make sure that the NLU has integrity. You want to make sure that it's accurate and it's performing well. You want to make sure the experience is good, uh, the right use cases are covered, those kind of things. But at the same time, the business isn't doing this for shits and giggles, for want of a better word. <laughs> it's, it's doing it for a specific reason. So the business might be looking at slightly different things that constitute success. I'm wondering whether you could share a little bit on, first of all, what, what are you looking for? in this instance when you're looking at you know the first few months of going live with a new chapel what are you trying to measure and then at the same time or after what is it that the business cares about as far as what what's what is it what's it looking for in terms of the results and stuff like that yeah yeah i think uh we managed to keep expectations uh at a decent level at the start um and uh yeah i think we could get away with uh um a lot at the start so um the business focus wasn't so um, uh, present, but for us, it was really recognition rates is super important. Uh, are we recognizing the customer question correctly? Um, and then, uh, of course, the part that you resolve, uh, but we also ask a, um, a customer experience question after we provide an answer. Uh, did this answer your question, yes or no? Um, and yeah, the higher the percentage no, 
course, uh, that would be uh, our starting point to uh, start investigating. Um, and yeah, what was your, uh, what was your response? What was your response rate like on that? Because it's it's. I mean, we've used that in the past, and and I think I actually think it's a good idea to do that. But it sometimes can be a little bit like the website pop-ups that come up and say, "Can you leave some feedback?" or, you know, press one if you want to uh, help us with a survey after the call, kind of thing. Like the volumes we found were not always huge. Like, did you find that you had enough volume for it to be useful? Yes, definitely. We have a fifty percent response rate on that question. Fifteen. Um, yeah, but that's also wow. because you need to answer. It's part of the dialogue. Uh, so if it didn't, if we provide an answer, um, and that should be sufficient, um, then we ask that question: uh, Did this help you? Yes or no? And uh, by answering no, you can escalate to a customer service agent. Um, so yeah, uh, but also people that were helped um, have a high response rate. I think over yeah over twenty five percent. Wow. That's really good. That is really yeah. good. Um, so you mentioned, so at the beginning, you were coming out of kind of like an innovation team, wasn't it? And you were exploring mm-hmm. this technology, done yeah. a lot of research, built this thing, done some testing, went live. Your team is monitoring it and measuring it. You're looking for the accuracy rate of your intents and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you mentioned that the business wasn't as interested because it was an experiment. It's innovation. It's, it's trying something, uh, hope for, hoping that it works, but not being penalized if it fails. Yes. That was 2020. It's now 2022. What's mm-hmm. the business level of interest like today? I wonder if you can describe how that dynamics might have changed. Because I imagine if you've still got a job, uh, Rabobank <laughs> and the chatbot is uh, gone from strength to strength. So, and we'll talk about that journey. But just in general, what was the difference in business buy-in from then compared to now? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, we were in a department back then um, that yeah didn't have a lot of um, uh, funding capabilities. Um, and um, last year, uh, we moved departments uh, to a department that already had uh, the IVR solution um, and uh, uh, like the employee tooling of Genesis. Um, and um, yeah, that department was called contact management and it has been rebranded to conversational banking. So I think that wow. uh, really says a lot about uh, how serious this is being taken. And uh, yeah, there's actually a huge demand within the bank uh, yeah, to, uh, to join in. Uh, we've uh, created um, a business virtual agent as well, uh, which was uh, successfully launched on our new platform uh, in April. Um, so yeah, there's a huge interest. We are onboarding more and more uh, departments um, of employees that have customer contact on our messaging channel. Um, it's a chat channel, but it's asynchronous messaging. Um, so yeah, we are really boosting this channel also because we see that it's uh, the preferred channel for a growing group of uh, customers. Mm, nice. And and so the the messaging channel, is that like SMS messaging? Uh, no, no, it's a, uh, we, it's a chat, but we call it messaging because it is now like WhatsApp. It's uh, asynchronous. Right. You can save your chat and uh, uh, yeah, reopen it later. Ah, okay. And is this part of the original chatbot? Is this an iteration to that, or is this something different? It's an iteration. Yeah. So we've developed the our uh, we have two teams, basically the content team uh, full of content designers and um, the technical team with developers. And the technical team has always um, had uh, the chat application, uh, yeah, um, as their feature. 
uh, as well as the virtual assistants. Right. Interesting. So 2020, when it launched, it's it's obviously scaled. The business is a lot more invested to the point where it's rebranded a whole department mm-hmm. to conversational yeah. banking, which I absolutely love that. Um, what in terms of the use cases, we'll get onto maybe the internal use cases and so on in a moment, but in terms of the customer facing chatbot, what was the journey like from 2020 onwards and what have been like, you know, the features, the use cases, the expansion, you've mentioned there, asynchronous, like what other things did you find a need for and implement over the two years since 2020 to now? Yeah, um, I think due to, oh, first of all, our main focus was on creating way more content. Uh, we saw the number of questions exceeded uh, the content that we have hugely. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's really optimizing our existing content and creating as much new content as possible. But because we had such a small team for such a long time, I think we had uh, at Go Live three or four conversation designers um, that really had to do all that work. Um, and me sort of trying to uh, uh, yeah um, uh, give some direction uh, through data. Um, so the first two years were really focused on that and besides that um, yeah developing our um, uh, custom front end to be more uh, customer friendly UX friendly within the enterprise uh, UX standards um, and yeah at some point we really reached I felt the limits of our tooling back then which was uh, nuance Mina uh, which is a great tool uh, but it was uh, yeah becoming end of life and it wasn't really fitting our enterprise architecture so we couldn't uh, connect to any backend systems um, and yeah that really uh, um, led to a year of uh, or two years actually of transitioning to a new uh, system um, to a new platform uh, which we are currently using now so that's uh, yeah, nice that. so so the limitations that you felt from the original platform was that a limitation because you didn't have the ability to connect to those systems internally or was it a limitation of the platform's inability to be able to build custom integrations and things like that um it was possible but um it was hard it was um yeah uh, it required a lot of um uh, yeah pro code uh, integrations uh, so it wasn't really fitting our the way that we were organized uh, we had too little developers uh, and also the integration that we would be would be making weren't really fitting the yeah the architectural standards and security standards um, and also yeah it required it had yeah there was little involvement of content designers so uh, what we were missing was uh, citizen development friendly uh integrations uh yeah and and the ability to make our content more contextual right and yeah besides that we we learned the the craft by doing um so we had also created this monster with uh, a giant amount of training phrases and uh, yeah it was so hard to untangle that uh, yeah that mess that we had created in some parts uh, that uh, yeah, we kind of reached uh, yeah the limits of performance within the platform. Yeah, yeah, that's a common story that, and it's difficult to be able to forecast that far out when you're kind of just beginning, and when you get your NLU in such a tangle, 
it becomes absolutely impossible to yeah. you know you add one new intent and everything else can collapse and if you're yes. not monitoring it you don't know about it and it's like what's going on um i'm assuming you're using some kind of tooling to to monitor the nlu now to make sure that it's it's clean and there's good separation between intents and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. yeah yeah so uh we've always used the we've looked for tools that were um uh, yeah so fully rounded that those would also uh, encompass uh nlu testing abilities uh, so currently we are using Power Virtual Agents of uh, Microsoft uh, and Topic Overlap tooling um, uh, is available, but also we run uh, uh, tests. Um, so Nuance Nina used to have uh, automated cable testing within the tool itself, which was a really nice feature. Uh, and hopefully uh, Microsoft will uh, add that to Power Virtual Agents as well. Uh, but uh, we've also, uh, yeah, we also have a uh, custom testing tool uh, with a blind test set to see if the model is repressing or not. Mm. So you're using Power Virtual Agents to power the actual front end chatbot? Uh, no, we have a custom front end. Uh, right. We, uh, so, you've, so you've built a custom interface to, so that you have, yes. what, what the customer sees and interacts with is custom, but yes. behind that is Power Virtual Agents? Yes, correct. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is very interesting because I've always... Um, <clears throat> I've used the Azure services a bit and then uh, the bot framework and stuff like that. Um, I've always thought that Power Virtual Agents was a little bit more of a kind of, uh, how would you explain it, kind of like less sophisticated. However, mm -hmm. it seems as though that's probably a wrong assumption given that you've been using it for quite some time and it's replaced Nuance Nina uh, which obviously isn't as nice as Nuance Mix is today but still nuance is nuance typically has good technology so yes. is what is it about power virtual agents aside from it sounds like better authoring tools to be able to delegate down to you know individuals within departments to be able to manage content and stuff like that better creation uh is, is that mainly what it's giving you uh over and above what what is it giving you over and above uh nuance uh we had three main uh, yeah, focal points uh, in looking for new tooling, and that was that it would be citizen development uh, user friendly. Um, so it had to have a good, uh, easy to use, low code uh, canvas. Um, and uh, it had to fit our enterprise architecture and have easy integrations uh, so that we can become uh, transactional and contextual. Um, and it had to be uh, future proof and uh, we did uh, uh, yeah, uh, an analysis of uh, several tools and ended up with Power Virtual Agents. It has been around for a few years and indeed the bot framework uh, composer that is their main bot uh, tooling, um, but they're integrating uh, bot framework composer into Power Virtual Agents and actually they've uh, announced um, yeah, the upcoming release of PVA2 um, which uh, one of its main features is the unified canvas and that is bringing uh, almost all of the bot framework composer uh, technology uh, to the low-code platform of Power Virtual Agents. Mm, nice, that will be yeah. uh, revolutionary um, because comp Compose is decent enough, it's still got some kind of drag and drop, no like low-code bits about it. Um, the framework was always a bit clunky especially for me i don't use i don't use it because i'm not a developer but like i've worked on projects with it and it's very much the same as you know having a 
Lex with a lambda function behind it. It's all very much code kind of heavy. Yeah. Composer, I like Composer, um, but being able to fuse that with Virtual Agent sounds sounds wicked. I didn't really, I, I must have missed that announcement. Yeah, there was um, uh, the Conversation Design Institute festival uh, two weeks ago, and Microsoft was present to uh, uh, yeah, to present there to show their uh, PVA2 uh, unified canvas. And uh, yeah, you could tell from the response from uh, the audience that uh, yeah, this is really uh, yeah, they've really uh, figured it out. I think mm. really got it. And um, yeah, what's so great about uh, Microsoft is that they have all this other software that uh, you can already see them uh, uh, adding to Power Virtual Agents. So um, it, PVA2 will also contain Excel-like formulas, uh, for instance, and uh, it already has uh, commenting on uh, uh, on the canvas like uh, Word has, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, that's wicked. That is wicked. Yeah. I missed that. I missed the festival because I was on holiday. Um, I was I was either entertaining a child in the pool, <coughs> or I was uh, <laughs> trying to <coughs> trying to catch some rays. Uh, but that's good. That I'll, I'll I'll definitely be checking that out. Um, it it sounds like a, a a process that, to be honest, to to go from nuance you might end up with getting a bit of that nuanced stuff back uh in your in your back pocket actually because uh, who yes. knows what's going to happen with, <laughs> with how they do with uh, with integrated nuance but uh, so you've got one solution that's become complex and a lot of people have hit this point with dialogue flow es very similar situations where mm. they've been using it for a while um and they've hit a limit they've they've basically clogged up their nlu and they can't really do much else. And so they're looking for other alternatives. Uh, there's no real way of getting around it other than almost firing up a new instance of something, analyzing your current NLU with a tool, you know, Qbox, Botium, Human First, sounds as though Microsoft's got something similar, to figure out how, what the best way of constructing the NLU is from the ground, yeah. ground up. Uh, and then you're basically building it all again. And so, is that the process that you followed, or if not, what what was the process that you went through to get out of nuance into Power Virtual Agents? Yeah, uh, no, you're right. Um, and I think our uh, the first thing that we did was um, see if we could recreate the same user experience uh, for our customers in uh, Power Virtual Agents. And uh, our custom front end really turned out to be yeah uh, uh, spot on. Uh, that decision to go for that um, because uh, yeah we were able uh, even if we can't recreate the exact same uh, type of content like for instance buttons um, then uh, still our front end can translate uh, content that we have created to Power Virtual Agent so we use Markdown as well in our content um, and we've uh, yeah basically took all of our types of dialogues and um, uh, studied uh, for uh, two weeks with a, a small group of people uh, to recreate those dialogues in PVA. Uh, and uh, our aim was to, uh, yeah, to have an exact equal user experience. And we succeeded in that. Um, and yeah, after that, uh, the, uh, we had an implementation partner as well. Uh, so that helped. Uh, they did, uh, yeah, a lot of manual labor um, especially regarding the NLU. And yeah, um, it mostly involved trimming down the giant amount of sentences that we had uh, to just uh, a set 
that uh, would fit the PVA MOU. Um, and that sometimes meant going from hundreds of phrases to uh, 10. <laughs> Interesting. But it can, it can improve because sometimes the hundreds of phrases, um, there's far too similar to other phrases and other intents. And also a lot of them have stuff that is a bit superfluous, not really relevant to the intent, so to speak. Um, yes. So yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that before where trimming it down considerably helps. Yes, yeah. Yeah, basically, migrating is a relief almost <laughs> because uh, you get to um, yeah clean clean up. Mm, definitely, um, that's really good. So, what about what about transactional like use cases? I think you alluded to it a little bit. You know, you've got the FAQ stuff and and the the things that you can answer likely without doing any kind of authentication or any kind of like uh, verification that the person is who they say they are and stuff like that. But to get into some of those real kind of like core business transactions to really start to strip some value out of this this assistant from a, a kind of like operational perspective. Uh, you need to be able to do a lot more than answer questions. You need to be able to get into your line of business systems, authenticate the user, you know, make sure that you're actually presenting accurate information and all that kind of stuff. You need to build trust, a whole load of other things going on. Is there any transactional use cases live at the moment or is that something that you're kind of working on or part of the roadmap? Um, uh, the latter for, uh, for chat. Um, so that is really the next step uh, we are hoping to introduce this quarter. Um, and uh, yeah, um, uh, luckily we can now um, make use of things like Power Automate uh, to connect to external APIs. Um, so that is really our focus point uh, is to yeah, get those first transactional dialogues uh, ready. And we have a big advantage that um, uh, yeah, I think 90% of our uh, users are in the logged in environment. Um, so we have the chat um, inside um, the desktop version and the Rabo app for both uh, consumer and business uh, customers. Uh, so that is already the locked in environment. So right, nice. That's wicked. Yeah, bypass all of that information, all of that stuff within the chatbot itself. Saves you a hell yeah. of a hell of a headache. Um, wicked. So <clears throat> you also mentioned that there is an internal use case you've got internal bots for internal use cases and whatever you can shed shed a bit of light on on what that does yeah um we have uh it's called the cross-channel service desk and that is mainly focused on uh, it uh, related uh, questions from employees um and they still uh, use Nuazina, and they are actually now in the process of uh, considering pva maybe um, we are hoping to uh, move with the ivr from nuance uh, to pva um, in the next quarter, um, and yeah, then it would only be the custom services that still uses Nina. Of course, uh, they can continue using that or maybe use Mix. Um, but uh, yeah, we are also uh, going to introduce them to how we use Power Virtual Agents to see if that might be a good fit for them. Um, Power Virtual Agents also have a, a Teams uh, version, uh, so yeah, I think uh, it could be a great fit for them as well. Mm, definitely. You mentioned IVR. What's the story with Nuance in the IVR? What, what, what are those use cases looking like? Um, currently, we have um, a routing. So we recognize the customer question and we route to the best fitting employee. Um, but we have the ambition uh, to grow uh, to, uh, yeah, so PVA is an ASR solution um, and audio codes is in between that as well. 
mm-hmm. um, for the speech to text. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, one of those best fitting employees is hopefully also our voice uh, voice assistant in the future. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, we've done workshops with audio cords in the past. The, the voice AI connect is it that you use to to connect Microsoft to the call center? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Um, so interesting. You mentioned that IT using nuance. You mentioned customer service. You mentioned IVR. You mentioned the stuff that you're doing with the chatbot. It sounds as though there's different teams that have ownership over these different bots. Is that how it is? That how it is? I wonder if you explain how the kind of yeah. ownership runs in in Rabobank. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so within conversational banking, we have a team uh, yeah that handles the IVR solution. Um, and yeah, that's also the reason that we moved to that department and really brought focus uh, to our conversational solutions. And uh, our ambition was to, uh, because the IVR from Nuance um, is very separated from the uh, textbot. Um, so uh, yeah, our ambition, our ambition was to move to one conversational platform uh, to have reusability of, uh, for example, uh, uh, API connections and uh, being transactional creating one solution that can be deployed uh, in three different bots. Um, yeah. 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 And you, you also get the benefit of, so so t- typically with other digital technologies, and, and I've, I've seen this happen the same with, with conversational AI, is that you end up going from either one team, in this case it would be your team, in the kind of innovation uh, situation, exploring new technology, that then proves it can work, and then begins to scale it. And then that team is the one that then creates the new instances, whether it's chat into messaging, into IVR, into internal facing use cases, whatever it might be. And that team end up growing naturally into a center of excellence. And then over time, devolving responsibility down to business units. Um, Or it works the other way, which is that you have innovation happening Innovation maybe might be a strong word in some instances because we're getting to the point where this technology has proven to work and so it's more about implementation rather than innovation. But you've got different teams in different departments that have identified a need independently that then go and create their own solutions and then the business realizes, well, we're duplicating here and we're duplicating there, we're overspending here, let's consolidate create that center of excellence and then we can revert down back to devolving responsibilities where it's right um it sounds as though you might be in the latter model does that does that fit does that sound right yes yeah that's exactly right and we had two uh, so before we had uh, the content team the content designers team and the it development team um that were together in the same uh, department but we did two moves uh the content designers moved to the department where um, a lot of service uh, digital content was being created also for employees in uh, customer service agents um, and where a lot of knowledge and also uh, duplicate uh, content uh, in that sense was being made. And we moved the technical team uh, to the same uh, department uh, where we were creating, where we had another technical team creating uh, our other conversational solution. So we are indeed, uh, and also within our department, we've done some restructuring where we have a platform team and uh, feature teams uh, that really build. Uh, yeah, so we have the dif- yeah, dividing the uh, responsibilities and the work to be as efficient as possible. Yeah, definitely. And you also get the benefits of having, 
where you've got some degree of synergy between content designers, uh, conversation designers and things like that. You've got better consistency between the conversations on different channels. I don't know if you went through the process of creating like a personality or persona for, for the assistant that you're working on kind of thing. Yeah, and so if the IT, if the IVR team have worked on it independently, your team have worked on one thing independently, you may potentially have two different tones, two different kind of things. Yes. So you, having that centralized, something centralized in the earlier days means that you can then get some standards in play. And as long as you can educate the rest of the, the organization on those standards, you can devolve and almost become oversight rather than implementers. And uh, yeah, you can then you can then kind of like have the best of both worlds, basically give independent teams the freedom to create and the freedom to build things for their use cases, whilst keeping the integrity of the whole assistant across all different touch points and use cases. You know. Yeah, exactly, and that is really our next step for uh, the voice solution as well for the IVR. Is that was really focused uh, on the technical aspect of it, um, of recognizing the question and routing. Um, but uh, way less on, yeah, conversation design was not part of that process. Um, so that's really the next step for uh, for us as a department uh, to also introduce that uh, there. Mm, nice, nice. What are, what are some of the sort of like lessons that you've learned over the, over the years? Like you've had, you've come through a route that some others have as well. We had Phil Jordan on from HomeServe in the, in the UK. It's an insurance company that provides home cover. They'll do plumbing and joinery and bits. Anything, anything happens with your house, they'll come and fix it. And uh, he had a very similar journey, working in customer service. Then um, they were exploring these, these uh, voice assistant capabilities and, and then become into a similar kind of position as yourself. And we also had... Um, We've had plenty of Charles Guth, for example, very similar situation where it's like it's interesting where this role is coming from because it's natural it should do. It should come from customer service and contact centers. But typically and historically, it's it's unique, I think, to find this is a bit of a generalized statement, actually. But historically, when technology hits the contact center, it's usually the the agents within the contact center and the management or whatever that use the technology. It's not often the case that the, the, those people are actually able to develop, to build out use cases, to have control of their world, so to speak. Um, so this is a really interesting type of uh, advancement in this kind of space because you've got people who are subject matter experts, know the business inside out, know every nook and cranny about the business more than any individual from any other department that tend to specialize in their division. Um, but it's still unique that those people end up, for example, taking on roles like you do, because you need a, you need other skills beyond knowledge of the business in order to be yeah. able to do this effectively. So there's a, I, the first question I was going to ask is what are the things that you learned, but maybe we're, we're edging into here around with your background in customer experience and the understanding and experience you have of the business, what else do you think that other customer service agents and similar need in order to be able to move into working on conversational AI full-time over and above the knowledge of the business? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's very important for uh, uh, companies to start understanding, first of all, it's important for companies to uh, let go of the idea that 
you need a certain education, educational background or years of experience before you are suitable uh, to, uh, yeah, to perform a certain job. And I think within this uh, field, it has become very apparent that uh, you should be looking at uh, personalities more than uh, experience. Um, and um, as a customer service agent, uh, you need to have, of course, a thorough understanding of the customer and, uh, and their context. Uh, but uh, also, I think, um, yeah, a keen eye for IT and, and uh, technical solutions. You need to be able to, um, to transform those conversations that you had with customers on the phone uh, to a way more abstract level, you need to make that yeah draw them out and uh, see how they technically work. Um, and yeah, you need to have um, the endless uh, desire to grow and learn. Uh, yeah, I, I spent every day besides my actual job uh, to learn more about data analysis, uh, about tooling, uh, about developments in the field. So yeah, you do need that uh, drive, I think. Mm, mm, interesting. What What were some of the things then, the, the question I was going to ask before that, what are some of the things that have been the biggest sort of learning curves for you coming out of that role uh, in customer service, moving into a role which is still quite similar because you're still working on customer service solutions, but now you've got technology, you've got a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of different skills that you're needing to develop to be able to do this. Like, What were some of the learning curves that you went through personally when you, from moving from that role to, to this one and beyond? Um, I think it's what you mentioned before from uh, being a user of technology to uh, help Form it and uh, transform it. Um, that really takes a completely different mindset, and um, I think I've learned a lot also by um, uh, listening and looking at uh, developers create uh, solutions and testing them. Um, yeah, really learned how you can make a change in the way that you are um, servicing your customers um, with the technique that you have, uh, and you learn. The vocabulary of how to, uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah, make others join in in what you vision should change. Hmm. If you could, what, what about the team then? Actually, what what are the, some of the biggest learning curves you think the team went through from twenty eighteen to to now? Um. We've become way more professional in uh, our way of working. Um, that is really the main thing. It's, it's, um, and one of the main um, uh, things that we learned was uh, documentation is everything. Um, tooling can change, people change. Uh, the overturn in people is uh, huge in this industry. It's very hard to find new people. Um, and there's a huge learning curve before you really grasp what this uh, yeah, um, trade is all about. Um, and the more you document uh, and explain processes, uh, the easier it becomes uh, to be agile in that as well and to uh, take uh, all these changes that continuously uh, come in your path uh, yeah, in uh, the most efficient uh, manner. Mm, nice, nice. That is wicked. Um, Cool. Uh, there was one final question I was going to ask, but it's, it's left my head now. Let me see if I've measured it, if I got it down. Um, 
There was one final question, but it seems to have slipped out of my head. I'll come back to it if it, if it pops into my head. What, so, so what's the what's the uh, what's the future looking like for for Rabobank? Then, what do you see? What do you think? The, oh no, that was it. I've got it. I've got the question back now. What is it that you would do differently if you were to go through this again? What are some of the things that you would do differently? Uh, definitely the AI training part, um, and yeah. I think we overlooked the importance of getting a proper NLU model. We really did. And yeah, that that resulted in this monster, this huge entanglement of, uh, of topics. And uh, yeah, really uh, familiarize yourself with best practices. Um, keep continuously testing on what is the effect if you add new topics that I would definitely do different. And also we um, contributed to, uh, well, we ad we're adding training phrases with the entire team. Uh, also people that never had any real training. Uh, and yeah, that was a huge mistake. <laughs> Interesting, nice. Well, Stefan, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for for joining us. I'll put your LinkedIn details and stuff into the uh, into the show notes uh, if anybody wants to wants to check it out. I'm assuming they'd need to be logged into Rabobank in order to actually see the the goodies, so to speak. Uh, and not everybody might have uh, have a, have an account, but it's been definitely definitely appreciative uh, of your time uh, for joining us and sharing your insights. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And you can, in fact, uh, check out our chatbot on uh, our main uh, webpage, rabobank.nl. Cool. Let's do that then. Let me just take a note of that. Rabobank. It's on most of our pages. NL. Cool. In the I'll put the link there then. Yeah, on the bottom of the page. Perfect. I will. I will put it there then. That sounds good. Wicked, uh, Stefan. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And boys and girls, don't forget register to. Uh, I didn't realize I've had the ticker on the screen the whole time there. Uh, <laughs> please do register to our free CX Maturity Workshop. Uh, it's run by Cognigy. It's facilitated by yours truly. Vux.world forward slash Cognigy. Uh, if you want to register for a place, it's going to be two hours long. You're going to learn a hell of a lot about where you are in your current stage of maturity as far as customer experience creation is concerned. And we're going to go through a bunch of exercises that will help you level up. You'll be working with other people in similar positions and it's going to be absolutely amazing and it is entirely free uh, which is which is mind-blowing so vux.world forward slash cognigy uh, if you want to learn more about that and until next time next week same bat time same bat channel where we'll be speaking with uh, Orlando we're speaking with who we're speaking with uh, Orlando Gadea who is the VP of uh, customer experience at Black & Decker and Braden Ream a friend of the show long time friend of the show from Voice Floor we'll be talking about conversation design maturity uh, on Wednesday and Thursday 21st uh, is going to be the workshop on CX maturity so thank you for tuning in and thank you Stefan again and we'll see you all uh, very very soon great thanks